Oh, that's fun stuff. Welcome to Mission Hills Online. You know, uh, when I watched that, uh, the thought occurred to me that uh, so much of life can look really familiar, and at the same time, it can also be scary. Uh, there's a lot of our lives right now that look mildly familiar. We're in a familiar context. We're seeing our families. We're seeing our familiar faces. And yet there's so much of life that feels uncertain and even scary and unknown. And so getting, getting some feedback here. Let me just... Uh, Who's making all the noise? There we go. Uh, yesterday, I went for a seven-mile run, and before I left, I was like, oh, I wonder what the weather's going to be like. And so I, I pulled out my phone. I went, oh, man, there's, there's no rain in the forecast. And then I, I went out, and about three and a half miles, at the furthest point of my run, the skies opened up, and it just started pouring. And despite the forecast, it's not what I expected or I wanted, and yet it all worked out. And uh, my sweat became just a shower, and uh, it was actually a really fun run. But at that point, there was no turning back. And again, I would say there's these moments in our life, and I think we're in one of those now, where life looks really familiar but unpredictable. Life looks really familiar, and yet at the same time, it feels largely uncertain. Um, a few weeks ago, as we began our journey towards Easter, which is just two weeks away, I wanted to look at the humanity of Christ. And in that humanity, um, look at these stations um, that have been examined the centuries of Jesus going up to the cross. And there was this passage that seemed a little confusing, maybe even a little obscure. Like when I say obscure, it might be one of those passages that you're reading and you just read right past because you know where it's headed. And it's, he's, he's on his way to Golgotha, to, to carrying the cross. He's shouldering this and um, he has this moment where he's encountering these women who are weeping and some of his disciples along the way towards his crucifixion. And, and then he cautions them that they shouldn't weep for him, but that their concerns should be for themselves and their children, considering this evil that was rising throughout Jerusalem. And so uh, the passage comes to us out of uh, Luke 22. And in Luke 22, or excuse, 23, verses 27, uh, it says, uh, let me just uh, see if I can't bring it up on the screen here. Sorry about that. He said these words. He said, a large crowd behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming 
when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women childless and the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have not nursed, people will beg the mountains and plead with us, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? That seems a little confusing. And so I wanted to just spend a little bit of time on it because he says, weep for yourselves. Because what he's saying is the suffering that would come when they finally in 70 years laid siege, the Romans laid siege in Jerusalem because they wanted to fight like militarily fight and the whole temple was destroyed and most of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and the idea would people would, in, in verse 30, people would seek refuge in death more than in their trials and in their suffering. And his point is if they treat the Messiah in this way when he's present, imagine what it'll be like when he's gone. So here's Jesus leading up to Jerusalem. He knows what he's got to do. He knows this isn't his first choice, but he's essentially, you're worried and crying over the wrong stuff. It could be so much worse. Imagine that picture, Jesus carrying the cross, knowing he's going to die, going through this mid-torture stream, and he's like, don't even cry for me. You're crying, you're weeping over the wrong stuff. So a couple of things that are just about this passage. We don't even know who these women are that Luke references. And some of them might, that might have been ones that have brought children to be healed or maybe ate some of the bread when he fed the multitudes. Some of them might have witnessed the curing or the healing of friends and relatives. Maybe some of them were professional mourners who often were part of these large processions leading a crowd in mourning. We don't know. But what we can say is that whoever they were, were most likely not expecting Jesus's response. He doesn't want their pity nor their grief because he's going where he knows that he must. And however awful Jesus's death might be, Luke reminds us, we're never alone in our grief. We're never alone in our fear. We're never alone in our confusion or our uncertainty. Jesus understands because he experienced all of it firsthand. But there's still more. God doesn't just redeem or just understand suffering somehow silently and helplessly beside us. God also promises to redeem. Last week I talked about, I think we're in a season now where life has come to a crawl and God wants to redeem this time, not just help us pass the time to get through it, to get life. I think through this even redeems Jesus's suffering. In and through his death, God ultimately defeats death. In and through injustice, Jesus experiences, God brings justice but not through a strength of force, but through a peculiar power of vulnerability. And so he's like, don't weep for me. Even, if it, even as he takes on the brokenness of the world. And so when I was thinking about this, what I wanted to say is this, when we experience the gospel in a real and a personal way, the message of the gospel should always 
disorient us. Now that doesn't sound like good news, but it is. Recently, I spent time with a, a mentor in Denver and he was explaining, and he has a PhD in psychology, he has a master's of divinity degree, but he says, David, there has to be something. We have to become disoriented for us to enter a portal of transformation. In other words, disorientation always precedes reorientation, ideally in Christ. So think of it this way. Here's my life that feels very ordered. I know how to provide for my family. I know how to work hard. I know how to put a roof over our head, food on our table, make friends, on and on. But then we go through disorder and whatever is that disorder, and it drops us down into what feels like a valley, but hopefully on the far side of that is a reordering or a reorientation. And so I don't know what your earliest encounters with the gospel was, but my hope, and I know this doesn't sound like good news, is that you experience that somewhere in your spiritual journey, there was a disorientation, a, a kind of disorder. I remember growing up in a wonderful Christian home, but a lot of my faith was found in the community that I was a part of. There is an extended cousins and aunts and uncles. There was godly um, people in our church. There were my parents who showed an authentic faith, but I wouldn't say that my faith was really my own. I was just sort of going along for the ride, trying to not disappoint people. But if I was honest, I was a upper middle class, kind of self-absorbed with a chip on my shoulder, 17-year-old kid. When I ended up on a mission trip to Mexico outside of Tijuana working with orphans. And for that week, I saw the biggest smiles. I saw a, a sense of um, almost gratitude and contentment that I knew I had never experienced. And I felt like that week with orphans began to disorient me in such a way. It took my normal, which was privileged, which was really good, and I had no gratitude about it, but it began to soften my heart. I remember even saying the words, and some of you have heard me describe this before, you know, I think I'm more of a jerk than I realize. My parents aren't jerks. I'm a jerk. Uh, and, and what I was really saying is, God's love had so captured me, and I started to see my life through the lens of Mexican orphans, and it softened and changed my life. It set me on a new trajectory, but it gave me what I felt like was a needed conviction about God's presence in my life that I had took for granted. See, what I'm saying is that the necessity of disorder always in, is intended to bring about a better order. That disorder is what we refer to as trials. And God uses our trials, our struggle, to reprioritize our lives and actually help reorient our life in Him. So James chapter 1 is a rather unlikable passage. It talks about finding joy or rejoicing in the trials. And it says to consider it all joy when you face trials. 
but we're not rejoicing in the actual trials. Good news. But what we're rejoicing is that our trials, will, what they'll produce, and hopefully it's a greater hope and identification with Jesus. And so I just want to talk a little bit about the enemies seeing. Jesus looks at these women and he says, don't pray for me. Don't worry about, like, you're grieving or you're afraid of the wrong things. And I wonder if in this little season of life, this, this disorientation where we're all homebound and we're wondering, we're dealing with fear, the fear of loss of personal health or personal finance, our economy, our nations at war. And we have a better future on the far side of crisis if we trust in Christ more. And I guess the great fear in life is the fear of death. But the fear of death, if that is our great fear, always makes us subject to slavery. We, if the fear of death becoming a slave, our approach to life becomes about hanging on to our control hanging on to stuff, hanging on to our time, hanging on to what we think we've earned or what we deserve. We're trying to hang on to our lives as we know it. And so what we get is we get into survival mode, which is never the Christian life. So you look around and you're like, the rush on toilet paper, canned goods, cleaning supplies is all based on a world afraid that they won't have enough to preserve our lives, ourselves. Listen to what Hebrews says about when this becomes our greatest fear. In Hebrews um, chapter two, it says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood. In other words, the son wasn't always flesh and blood. The son was one's only in heaven and only divine. But for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Think about that for just a minute. That's a powerful reminder of the things that we are being enslaved by, namely the fear of death or the fear of losing control or the fear of somehow surrendering some part of our lives. And so because of the resurrection, we believe that we have eternal life. That's great news. But it's not simply about living forever. It also means a new kind of existence, a new kind of humanity here and now. John 10, 10 is a famous verse, and it talks about, I have come to give life or abundant life. It's, it's about Christ coming down in the present, in 2020, without fear. It's, it's about in 2020 with a ravaging virus, with creating fear, hoarding, isolation, depression, accusations, who could have prevented this? And you can live without fear because you're living out of a resurrection life. That means we can be free from feeling like we're losing control. And hopefully we're learning 
what we're learning is that we are never really in control of our own lives. Again, the gospel introduces us to a kind of disorder. We live with order, and then we encounter this new life in Christ, and it disorders us. But on the far side of it, through the resurrection, it can mean a reordering of what we now know. This is life in Christ. This is the gospel message. But if all we do is go through life and just try and add God, yes to Jesus, and add him to our already sustainable and pretty good lives, it never becomes transformational. But it's what we do in the valley of disorder that enables us to be transformed as we reorient our life in Christ. I believe collectively, in varying degrees, we are all in valley of disorder, but we're not without hope and we're not without resource. We're not without promise. And what rises on the other side of that as we reorient our life in Christ, fearless servants, loving neighbors, compassionate co-workers, selfless leadership, giving generously. It becomes a living, breathing, compelling faith that now puts the divine on display. It replaces what feels like hell on earth, me losing control, with heaven on earth that it was never mine to control in the first place. I have a pastor friend in Seattle, and he was talking about this, and his name is Richard Dahlstrom. He said, that reordered life is exponentially better than prosperity cocooned in individualism. Can I just say that again? Because I had to write it down when I heard him describe that. He says, that reordered life is exponentially better than prosperity cocooned in individualism. See, when we live with the belief in the resurrection, we can live with a different level of confidence. We can't have this kind of life unless we surrender our lives to Christ, where we relinquish control and reorient our life in him. And so what we have in Jesus is this sort of high priest. You know, the priesthood of believers got reoriented, and we all became, with Christ in us, as Christ followers, a priesthood of believers, but we still have a high priest. And going back to a couple of passages in Hebrew, Jesus becomes our high priest, and what he's doing is he's, he's walking with us, and he's interceding on our behalf. Listen to the, some of the things that Hebrews says in, in chapter 4, verses 15. He says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. In other words, he walks through the valley of disorder on a way to reorder so that we might overcome temptation through his strength. In Hebrews 5.8, it says this, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the suffered. Jesus was in fact perfect when he was in heaven, but when he came and became human, he learned obedience. Think about that. 
Jesus, the Son of God, learned obedience. He's saying, if there's any other way, may this cup pass from me. And yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and we have a companion who walks with us. And then he says these words, therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Our priest prays for us constantly. And what we have to seek him are these time-honored traditions of worship, of scripture, of prayer, of the fellowship of the body of saints, because now we are living in this disordered time where space has opened up in our life. And it's time to draw near to God, not just to Netflix, but I'm watching Netflix, but not just to the news, even though I'm watching the news, not just working online, I'm trying to keep get my work done. But it's time to draw near to God. Through this valley of disorders, we begin to reorient our whole of our life in Christ. And so we need to find ways during this season to draw near to God so that we can be the people of hope. We can live within light of the resurrection. And so this is what I hope will, will happen in us and through us as we, as we go through this time together. So what do we do now? Um, what I'd like to do is lead us in a time of prayer. And um, I don't know how many of you have had the chance to look at um, <clears throat> this 20 ways to pray through this pandemic. I, I sent out this uh, as one of the links in what I call my home remedies, but I would to just spend some time with you praying through several of these categories. But rather than just me pray, I would love to have um, you join in with me and lead us in this time of prayer. I've printed this out and I've been praying through it this week. Um, I think it's a wonderful article. Consider we can be praying as the people of God for God's kingdom of heaven to come crashing down to this hellish experience where people are living incredibly vulnerable. And so with that in mind, there's these 20 prayers uh, to pray through the epidemic, and each one addresses specific needs and specific communities. So what I want to do is I just highlighted some in red, and I would just say, can we just pause and pray these collectively together? Can we do that? And so I'd like to just call on some of you to lead us in this. So if you could just pray out loud uh, and let us hear you and we'll just agree together. And maybe at the end of each one, we'll just say, Lord, hear our prayer right now. Buddy, can you read number one and two for us as we just spend some time in responsive prayer? You might need to all take off your mute.
Is it on the screen? Is it on the screen? Sorry, it is, but I didn't share the screen yet. <laughs> Here we go. Lord, for the sick and infected, God, heal and help. Sustain bodies and spirits. Contain the spread of infection. For our vulnerable populations, God, protect our elderly and those suffering from chronic disease. Provide for the poor, especially the uninsured. Let's just say together, Lord, Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. Oh, I love it. Those are those are joyful noises. Hey, Jen Watson, can you pray number four and five for us? Sure. Um, for our local, state, and federal governments, God help our elected officials as they allocate the necessary resources for combating this pandemic. Help them to provide more tests. For our scientific community, leading the charge to understand the disease and communicate its gravity. God give them the knowledge, wisdom, and persuasive voice. Lord, hear our prayer. And Lord, Lord hey, Linda from Salt Lake City, can you read it and leave prayer for six and seven? Of course. For the media committed to providing up-to-date information, God help them to communicate with appropriate seriousness without causing panic. For consumers of media looking to local information to equip us to be good neighbors, keep us from anxiety and panic, and enable us to be to implement the recommended strategies, even at a cost to ourselves. Harley, can you read number 12 and 13 for us? For workers in a variety of industries facing layoffs and financial hardship, God, keep them from panic and inspire your church to generously support them. For families with young children at home for the foreseeable future, God, help mothers and fathers to partner together creatively for the care and flourishing of their children. For single mothers and fathers, grow their network of support. Lord, hear our prayer. Hey, Shannon, can you read number 16 and 17 for us? For business leaders making difficult decisions that affect the lives of their employees, God, give these women and men wisdom and help them to lead self-sacrificially. For pastors and church leaders faced with the challenges of social distancing, God, help them to creatively imagine how to pastor their congregates and love their cities well. Lord, Lord, hey, Jason, can you read number 19 for us? For Christians in every neighborhood, community, and city, may the Holy Spirit inspire us to pray, to give, to love, to serve, and to proclaim the gospel that the name of Jesus Christ might be glorified around the world. Lord, Lord hear our prayer. And brother, can you read number 20 and just kind of walk us through that list? And I, and as he does, I would just encourage some of you, as you know, people in the healthcare field who are working in the front lines, just to be 
praying for them by name as we do this. Who'd you call, Dave? Oh, Hal. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. <clears throat> for frontline healthcare workers, we thank you for their vocational call to service. We also pray, God, keep them safe and healthy. Keep their families safe and healthy. God, help them to be knowledgeable about the diagnosis and treatment of this disease, as well as the changing protocols. God, help them to stay clear-minded in the midst of the surrounding panic. God, deliver them from anxiety for their lone loved ones, aging parents, children, spouses, roommates. God, give them compassion for every patient in their care. God, provide for them financially, especially if they fall ill and are unable to work. God, help Christians in healthcare to exhibit extraordinary peace so that many would ask about the reason for their hope. Give them opportunities to proclaim the gospel. God, we trust that you are good and do good. Teach us to be your faithful people in this time of global crisis. Help us to follow in the footsteps of their faithful shepherd, Jesus, who laid down his life for the sake of love. Glorify his name as you equip us with everything needed for doing your will. Amen. Lord, hear our prayers. Well, when I, when I began to study this passage this week, and Jesus just looks at these women who are so concerned, and he's like, don't, don't worry about me. Uh, you're, you're grieving over the wrong things. You're, you're afraid of the wrong things. And there is a way for us to continue to live as people of hope and of justice and of generosity and of mercy. Um, I want to encourage you, uh, as I've been encouraged with this word, man, just to seek Christ. Find time where in this valley of disorder, you can be reoriented reorganized so that side of self-isolation on the far side of of uncertainty we can be oriented reoriented christ and so let me just close us in prayer and i just want to say thanks so much uh for tuning in thank you for your faithfulness to christ i love our community and i love uh I love what we get to do. I love the blank canvas that we get to paint on and the kind of ministry that the Lord seems to have invited us into. I love your open to practicing a living faith and working out the gospel because I believe that the gospel is good news. And so when we start to practice these rhythms, what we're doing is we're encountering a living faith based on who we are in Christ Jesus. So do fear the uncertainty of these times, um, but allow the Holy Spirit of God to reorient us in this valley of disorder so that we can be more like him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are sovereign. You remain in control when we feel out of control, uncertain, unsure, tentative, and afraid. And yet you invite us 
to pray and seek you and surrender and live in an unusual kind of vulnerability. And that feels scary. So would you, by your Holy Spirit, give us the courage and the strength to walk in your truth, to be aware of your presence, so that we might be the very image of Christ in this broken humanity. Lord, you have heard the prayers of your saints lifted up. And I pray that these prayers would become like an aroma wafting up into the heavenlies. And you would meet us in a really special way. And you would meet our leaders in a really personal way. And you would meet those on the front lines of healthcare in a personal way. And you would make sense out of this madness, but not let it get through this time without it without redeeming this in our own lives, in our own country, and in our world. So have your will and have your way. Have your rule and have your reign. We give you full permission to disorient our lives so that we can find new life in you. That was the promise of the resurrection, and we want to be your resurrection people. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.